Tonight I have with me a list. Guess what? A top 10 list. I brought with me tonight the top 10 shortest books. Top 10 shortest books. It consists, by the way, of some pretend titles. Number 10, America's Most Popular Lawyers. That's a short volume. Number nine, different ways to spell Bob. Number eight, French hospitality. How about that one? Number seven, the 2013 Atlanta Falcons football highlights. Very slender volume right there. Number six, the Loganville Travel Guide. <laughs> Not a big book. Number five, everything men know about women. <laughs> you could probably put that down in a real concise uh, form. Number four, everything women know about men. No better on the other side. Number three, the engineer's guide to fashion. How about that? Just a nice pocket protector is all you need. Number two, the Amish phone directory. And then the number one shortest book of all time, Pastor Sandy's jokes that are actually funny. How about that? These would be very short books indeed. And speaking of short books, we have two that we're going to study tonight. Second and third John are the shortest books in the Bible. Both books combined for just 27 verses, only 500 words. I call them the Lilliputian letters after the little people in Gulliver's Travels. You could also call them the fruit of the loom letters, since both are brief. <laughs> Once there was a family eating at a restaurant. During the meal, the husband left for the restroom. He was gone for a long, long time. Finally, his wife sent her son to make sure that dad was okay. The boy walked into the restroom, and he saw three stalls there. He couldn't see his dad, though, and so he called out, Dad, are you all right? Where are you? A voice sounded from the middle stall, son, I'm okay. I'm in the second John. And that's where we are tonight. Second John. Ha <laughs> ha. We're off to a great start in 2014. John begins this letter by introducing himself, the elder. You know, these letters were perhaps the last New Testament books written. And by the time John penned this letter, he was 100 years old. He was the last living of the original 12 apostles. John's stature was unsurpassed within the Christian community. He was known just, not just as an elder. John was the elder. He was an elder with the capital E. The elder writes to the elect lady and her children. Now, some expositors believe that the elect lady is actually a sister church. In the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. Thus, it's possible that the lady and her children here are titles for a specific body of believers. It's more probable in my mind that John had a specific person in mind. In fact, some have suggested that both ideas are true. He could be writing to a devout Christian lady whose vibrant witness had birthed a church full of spiritual children. No personal names are used here because John wrote in a time of persecution. He didn't want to give the enemies of the faith ammunition to target anyone specifically. John writes to the elect lady 
and her children whom I love in truth. And here's John's theme, love in truth. You know, first John told us that if we love God, we'll love our brother. And here we're told that real love never ignores the truth. You see, God's love is always in harmony with God's truth. If ever our love causes us to ignore the truth, if in the name of love we tolerate or gloss over or accept some sin or falsehood, realize we're not truly exhibiting the real love of God. Real love affirms and supports God's truth. In today's can't offend, tolerant of everything, watered down world, many churches have adopted a love is supreme, unity at all costs kind of mentality. Nothing is as important as our love and peace and unity. Well, apparently they have forgotten the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 12, verse 51 through 53, Jesus said, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all but rather division. From now, from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus said he would draw a line in the sand he confronts us with the truth about God and about life and about us. And we're forced to make decisions that put us at odds with the folks who make the opposite choice. At times, friction erupts even within our own family. Not everyone humbles themselves and receives the truth. I've heard it said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you mad. For some people, that's the case. To insist on unity at all costs glosses over the reality of objective truth, God's truth. Once a pastor had called the kids down front of the sanctuary. He was having a little children's sermon. He taught that morning on unity. He said, okay, boys and girls, God wants us all to be one. A little four-year-old shouted, yeah, but I want to be five. To suggest that Christians and Muslims and Hindus and atheists and Mormons should just forget their differences and love one another as brothers is ridiculous. As Christians, we should love every person and we should seek to lead them to Jesus. But for us to embrace them as family is to deny the truth that saves us and defines us. Real love will never deny God's truth. And to suggest that it really doesn't matter what you believe, that doctrine is irrelevant, that all that matters is love, is a total naivety about what the Bible really teaches. I believe the notion that truth is irrelevant is straight from the pit of hell. You should know your doctrine will determine your destiny. Having love, even faith, is not enough. The real question is can the object of your faith save you? I mean, just because a baby can suck on a bottle is no guarantee he or she'll grow up healthy. It depends on the contents of that bottle. Likewise, faith alone will never save. Faith and love have to be grounded in truth. Well, John loves in truth. He pins, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Notice real truth is eternal. 
It doesn't shift from age to age or from generation to generation. It's unaffected by popular opinion. Truth is never trending. It's absolute. It's timeless. In verse 3, John extends his greetings to the elect lady and her children. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. Always remember, truth and love, they make a beautiful couple. They're married, in fact. They're wedded. They're wedded to one another. Well, verse 4 tells us, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. Apparently, John had been in contact with some Christians who had been discipled by this elect lady. And he rejoices that they're doing well. It was a credit to her and to her ministry. You know, it's true. A person who walks in truth is more than likely a person who was weaned on truth. This elect lady's disciples were on a good trajectory because they were straight from the start. From the very beginning, they were grounded in God's truth. He says, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Notice love is measured by how we walk. In essence, not what we say, but what we do. Love is a lifestyle. Real love is love in action. If I really love my wife, I'll not just do what's convenient or what's easy for me to do. I'll love her in the way that she wants and needs to be loved. In other words, I'll aim to please her. And this should be our attitude about God. Anybody can say they love God. But a real love for God walks according to what's pleasing to him. As John puts it, according to his commandments. He says, this is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. John is asserting here that nothing has changed. From the outset of his ministry, Jesus taught us the importance to love one another. John had reiterated this message. But real love is expressed on God's terms by doing his will, by keeping his commandments. This was the message that had been preached from the beginning. Theologian Richard Niebuhr once said, The great Christian revolutions have come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. How true that is. We tend to look for new tactics, but it's the rediscovery of simple truths that light revival fires. We don't need a new commandment. We need to put our love in action, and it'll change the world. Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. It was Mark Twain who wrote, A lie runs around the world while truth is putting on her shoes. In other words, bad news travels faster than good news. And this is true in the church. Paul warned the Ephesians about being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness for which they lie in wait to deceive. False doctrine constantly blows through the church. Whether it's those in John's day who've denied Jesus' humanity or those today who want to deny his deity, 
we need to be on guard. Warren Wearsby once quoted a pastor of a successful church who said, if I took my eyes off this work for 24 hours and stopped praying, it would be invaded before we knew it. You see, this pastor knew the importance of being vigilant in the cultivation and perpetuation of sound doctrine. Once there was a little boy who was asked by a Sunday school teacher if he knew how to define the term false doctrine. He thought the teacher had said false doctrine. He replied, yeah, false doctrine is when a doctor gives the wrong stuff to people who are sick. And this is also the definition of the term false doctrine. It's giving the wrong stuff to people who are spiritually sick. And here again, John tells us how to spot the person who is false doctrine. They may be right on 95% of what they say and teach, but invariably they will stray when it comes to what they believe about the person of Jesus Christ. John noted the deceivers of his day as those who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. You recall John waged a battle against a heresy known as Gnosticism. It was a system of belief that denied Jesus' humanness. In contrast, most false teachers today deny his deity. Both are wrong. Our Lord Jesus revealed himself as both fully man and fully God. Jesus is the God-man. John says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Notice this. John had labored to lay a solid foundation of right teaching in the church of his day. But he understood that that foundation could be lost unless every believer took responsibility to do what he or she could to ensure its preservation. You know, I look at all that God has done over the years at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. But if we don't continue to serve and support and give and protect, we can lose the things for which we've worked. If we just kick back and say, oh, I've done my part. I did my time in the nursery when my kids were younger. Oh, I gave money to the last project. I've already done that usher thing. It's someone else's turn now. Hey, if we all just pass the buck, we can lose what we've worked so hard to build. It's been said, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. I mean, that's why we need to own personal responsibility for the part in the project that God has called us to play. Notice verse 9. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. You see, this is why it's so crucial that your belief about Jesus is accurate for if you're not right about Jesus, you can't be right about God or with God. Jesus is the means by which God has chosen to redeem the world to himself. You can't be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. Jesus is the one bridge between God and man. There is a bridge in China. I'm almost afraid to try to pronounce its name. The Danyang Kunshan Grand Bridge or something like that. It purports to be the world's longest bridge. It's part of the Beijing to Shanghai Freeway. Its length is 540,682 feet. That's a tad more than 102 miles long. Imagine a bridge that long. And yet that's not the longest bridge. 
For Jesus connects heaven to earth, God to man. He spans the enormous gulf that's been caused by sin. Today, even though you've transgressed and violated God's law, you can still know God. You can have God through Jesus Christ. And verse 10 works all this out very practically. It says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. You see, in the first church, traveling apostles were numerous. Many of the infant churches lacked adequate leadership, so men traveled from place to place to fill the gap. The churches would put up these fellows and provide their needs and support their ministries. In the second century, there was a document known as the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve. And in the Didache, there are instructions given to the churches concerning these traveling apostles. Let me read you an excerpt. Every apostle who comes to you should be received as the Lord, but he should not remain more than one day. And if there is some necessity, a second as well. But if he should remain for three, he is a false prophet. In other words, if he stays for the whole weekend, he's a deadbeat. He's a freeloader. If he stays the whole weekend without offering to pay you something, He's a false prophet. He has poor motives. The Didache goes on and says, And when the apostle departs, he should receive nothing but bread until he finds his next lodging. But if he requests money, he is a false prophet. And not everyone who speaks forth in the Spirit, or in other words, says, Thus saith the Lord, is a prophet, but only if he has the kind of behavior which the Lord approves. From his behavior then will the false prophet and the true prophet be known. And every prophet who in the spirit or who speaks as if by the Holy Spirit orders a table to be spread shall not eat therefrom. But if he does, he is a false prophet. These are good instructions, aren't they? In other words, if the Holy Spirit speaks through a person and orders food, it better be for hungry, needy people, not the fat cat prophet. If he orders the food for himself, he's a false prophet. The Didache goes on, and whoever says in the spirit, give me money, do not listen to him. But if he says that it should be given for others who are in need, let no one judge him. In other words, a greedy or a lazy person in the ministry is still a greedy and a lazy person. Don't give in to their appeals for money. No matter how spiritual they make it sound, the church needs to discern. If there's sincerity, there will be unselfishness. It reminds me of the old maxim, treat your guest as a guest for two days. On the third day, give him a hoe. Sounds like that was taken from the Didache. <laughs> this Didache was probably written in the second century to correct the church's lack of discernment. Apparently, the first church abounded in love, but at times lacked discernment. The church was in the habit of taking in everyone, true teacher and false teacher. They were so enamored with the need to love that they failed to support the truth. And John is teaching us that a love that is not wedded to the truth is not real love. It seems that the problem in the early church was so prevalent that Christian charity was actually helping the heretics and perpetuating the spread of their heresies. This is why John warns in verse 11, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. 
offer a false teacher your support, and you become an accomplice in their deception. You are abiding and abetting a deceiver. Don't do that. If two Mormon missionaries pull up to your house on their bicycles, they're hot, they're sweaty. So in the spirit of niceness, you invite them into your air-conditioned house to take a nap and drink your lemonade. Man, that's wrong. You don't want to enable a false prophet to carry on in spreading their deception. You'd like to see them all pooped out and ready to quit. Don't encourage them. If you see them with a flat tire on the side of the road, you can probably pull over and help them get to safety, but don't help them fix the flat. They'll just jump right back on the bicycle and keep peddling their heresy, pun intended. There may be times to invite the Jehovah's Witnesses into your house and proper hospitality can be shown. But make sure your intention is to plant seeds of truth in their mind, not a hot meal in their belly. I'm not saying we shouldn't be friends of sinners or friends with the cultists. We need to be a friend of sinners if we're going to lead them to Christ. But when they are actively propagating lies, don't do anything that will help them. One commentator writes, John warns us not to unintentionally collaborate with the enemy. Don't be mean, but when he comes to your door, don't moisten lips that lie with your lemonade. I like that. In fact, I wrote that. John concludes his second letter. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. And this is why these letters are so short and to the point. John was planning a visit where he would end up filling in all of the details. He says, the children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Third John begins, the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. Now, 2 John was written to the elect lady. 3 John is written to a man named Gaius. And there are actually three Gaiuses in the New Testament. Acts 19 speaks of Gaius of Macedonia. Acts 20, Gaius of the city of Derby in Galatia. And Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 1 speaks of a Gaius that lived in Corinth. This Gaius to whom John writes could be either of the three I've mentioned or he could be none of the above. Whoever this Gaius was, John loved him in truth. It's interesting, the Greek name Gaius, it means on earth. And the message that John sends to Gaius would indeed apply to all those who presently live on the fallen planet. You could say that 3 John is a letter from the elder to the earthlings. Verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, here's a verse that for years has been misinterpreted and misapplied, and it has led thousands of Christians into serious error. What John intended to be a simple greeting has been taken by certain prosperity teachers as a promise of perfect health and wealth for all Christians. Oral Roberts was a chief culprit. Oral said that when he first came across 3 John 2, he said to his wife, Evelyn, now this means we're supposed to prosper. 
He claimed his whole Christian experience afterwards grew out of his understanding of 3 John verse 2. Yet here's the problem. Throughout the Bible, in fact, down through the centuries, even today, there are countless examples of devout believers in Jesus who haven't prospered financially and suffer chronic illness. And yet, despite their trials, they've thrived in their walk with God. You see, godly people can be poor. They do get sick, just like sinners. We both live in a germ-infested world. To take what John meant as a common salutation, just a wish for health and happiness, as an ironclad doctrine, is an example of shoddy Bible interpretation. Greek scholar Gordon Fee writes, To extend John's wish for Gaius to refer to financial and material prosperity for all Christians of all times is totally foreign to the text. John never intended that, nor could Gaius have so understood it. Thus, it cannot be the plain meaning of the text. And of course, one of the first rules of hermeneutics or biblical interpretation is to look at the verse in its proper historical and cultural context. Look for its plain meaning. What did the original writer mean to the original readers? Always remember, a text without a context ends up a pretext. And to take this verse out of context is wrong. Gordon Fee, he calls John's verbiage here in verse 2 as the standard form of greeting in a personal letter of antiquity. It was simply a hopeful and happy greeting. It was never intended to become doctrine and normative for all believers. John gets to the body of his letter in verse 3. He says, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. He enjoyed, he relished the fact that these disciples walked in the truth. Earl Weaver was the longtime manager for the Baltimore Orioles. He once threw a temper tantrum in the dugout. He knocked over coolers. He grabbed everything he could. He started throwing every, whatever he could grab. On his team that year was a born-again Christian named Pat Kelly. Well, after Weaver had pitched his fit, Pat spoke up. He said, Coach, I hope you learn to walk with the Lord. Earl Weaver wasn't too receptive. The old coach snapped back, and I hope you learn to walk with the bases loaded. You know, throughout the Bible, the Christian life is referred to as a walk. We're to walk in love, walk in the Spirit, walk by faith, walk as children of light. Our life with Christ is not a run, nor is it a crawl. It's a walk. You know, when you run, you lose focus. When you crawl, you have no focus. But when you walk, when you take a walk, the focus is on the one you're with. Walking denotes a consistent, steady, forward progression, step by step by step. There's a gentle leaning and leading. The time spent on a walk is refreshing and rejuvenating. And thus to walk in truth is our goal. It's to continue trusting and leaning and applying the truths of God to our everyday life. Gaius was a fellow believer who walked in truth. 
And John says to Gaius in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And let me tell you that as a pastor, I have no greater joy than to watch the folks under my ministry progress in their walk with the Lord. To get saved and then grow and then learn and then serve. What a joy that is. Not too long ago, a young lady posted on her Facebook wall how thankful she was for the foundation of solid Bible teaching that she had received from Calvary Chapel. I read that about three or four times. It was so encouraging. It caused me to rejoice. This happens almost every year in May at our leaders conference that we host. I have scores and scores of pastors who come up afterwards impressed by you. By the folks of our church, their eagerness to love and to serve and to help. Trust me, this encourages me like it did John. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, You will do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. I'll never forget the first time I read those words. Taking nothing from the Gentiles. We were going through the Bible for our very first time. Our church was just a couple of years old. And we read that verse taking nothing from the Gentiles. You see, at the time, we were occupying a building on a temporary basis. In fact, the owner wasn't even charging us rent. And after reading John's words to Gaius, I felt convicted. We were taking from the Gentiles. We were drawing worldly support for a spiritual venture. I felt it was the responsibility of God's people to pay their own freight. After reading that verse. And so the next week, I sent the landlord an unsolicited check. And I started doing so once a month. He never asked for the money. We just started sending it to him. Well, before we had sent that first check, the landlord didn't want to rent us the building. I think he didn't think we could afford it anyway. That's why we were temporary. And he was adamant. He didn't want to rent it. He wanted to rent it for more than we could afford. But you know, after a couple of months of us sending him the money, he called me one day. And he asked if we wanted to sign a lease. And he settled for what we could pay. And I believe it was God's blessing on our obedience to this verse. Understand, the church doesn't need to apply for government grants. We shouldn't ever dip into the community chest. God wants to fund his work through his people. Don't take anything from the Gentiles. God reserves for you and me and for all believers in Jesus the joy of giving and supporting his work. Verse 8, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. You know, here's a beautiful principle that you can become a fellow worker of the truth. When you give money or time or support or prayers to a missionary or to a pastor or to a church, understand you're investing in that ministry. You're becoming a fellow worker, a partner in their work. And thus you're sharing in the spiritual rewards of their labors. At the end of this past year, you, through your church, 
gave to Christian ministry in New Zealand and Honduras and England. And as a result, you now share in the rewards of ministry in places where you've never been personally. What a glorious thing that is, that we can share in in work that's going on all over the world through our support. Notice verse 9. He says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Now, up until now, you could have gotten the impression that this church was perfect, that great things were going, nothing bad was happening, but that's never the case, is it? (laughs) There are no perfect churches. There's always a fly in the ointment. There's always a diotrophy somewhere around. And here we're told that this Diotrephes, he loves to have the preeminence or the glory. And he had rejected John. You know, I read recently where the average American eats 68 hot dogs every year. The average American ate 68 hot dogs last year. You might have eaten more or less. I'm not sure. That's a lot of hot dogs, though, 68 hot dogs. Well, Diotrephes, he didn't eat hot dogs. He was a hot dog. Diotrephes, he loved to bask in the limelight. He was always a center of attention. He loved being the star of the show. Reminds me of a comment Woodrow Wilson once said of a proud associate. He was the only man I have ever known who could strut while sitting down. You met people like that? Well, Diotrephes could strut. Here was a power monger. He loved to be in control. He learned how to manipulate and intimidate and dominate. And when he came into the church, he brought this attitude with him. Diotrephes the dictator. You see, Diotrephes was the self-appointed church sheriff. He thought nothing should go on in his town, even in Jesus' name, without his approval. And it was this lust for the preeminence that made Diotrephes jealous. He was threatened by the ministry of other believers. And this is why Diotrephes refused to receive John. Verse 10 tells us that he made vicious slurs to discredit John the elder. Diotrephes acted like the union boss. And he didn't want John infringing on his turf. Heard the story of Bible expositor A.T. Robertson. He once wrote an article for a Southern Baptist magazine. His story depicted the conduct of this man, Diotrephes. But in his story, he didn't name who he was talking about. Well, in the weeks following, 25 Baptist church leaders across the state wrote letters to the editor, canceling their subscriptions to the magazine. They all claimed that Robertson had been pointing his finger at them. It's sad, but the church today is still plagued by diatrophies. When a church develops a single boss, it loses much of its blessing. When one man dictates to God's people, even to God, what can and can't be done, the work of the Holy Spirit is grieved and quenched. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Christian leaders are to be servants, not sergeants. Disciples, not dictators. 
It's been said the challenge of a Christian leader is to lead and not drive, inspire and not dominate, cause respect and not fear, win support and not opposition. There's only one master, only one boss for the believer, and his name is Jesus Christ. Notice verse 10. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. Theotrophies, he slanders those who threaten his position and power. He even told lies about John. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Notice this. Not only did Diotrephes oppose John, he opposed anyone else in the church who had tried to support John. For Diotrephes, it was his way or the highway. Diotrephes didn't allow for a dissenting opinion. He made no room for people who disagreed with him. This was an arrogant man. Hey, this was a cult leader in the making. And notice what John says at the beginning of verse 10. When he comes, he's going to put Diotrephes in his place. Boy, don't you wish you could have been present for that encounter? Sparks are going to fly. The elder is going to put his foot down. The elder is about to put the elitist in his place. Well, John writes, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Hey, instead of Diotrephes, let you and me be a Demetrius. Verse 12. For Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness. And you know that our testimony is true. You know, nothing is said of Demetrius other than he was a good example, that he had a good testimony from all. If we contrast him with Diotrephes, implied here is that Demetrius was probably a humble servant leader. He was a good man. Verse 13, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. You know, John had a problem with letters. You know, what he communicated and what he wanted to communicate in his heart didn't always come across in his letter. And so there were some things that he wanted to save for the face-and-face engagement. And you know, this is also the problem with email. (laughs) You know that? (laughs) Ever written an email that was misinterpreted? I have. Tone and inflection and volume, and facial expression are absent from an email. Some messages, no matter how awkward, no matter how unpleasant, they need to be saved and conveyed face to face. And then John concludes, Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. I love that. By name. John has been reflecting on the love of Jesus. And remember what was said of Jesus, the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When John tells them to greet his friends by name, he is exemplifying the love of Jesus. Jesus loves us personally, intimately, specifically. You've probably heard the statement, I love humanity. It's just people I can't stand. 
Well, that's not Jesus. Always remember, Jesus loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. And there we have 2nd and 3rd John.